I think I've got it. I've got it nailed down. I've absorbed <laughs> all of it. I'm going to set all of you fuckers straight. <laughs> Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we trot all over the timelines, one issue at a time. Today, we're talking about Deathmate, one of the biggest crossovers of the 90s that simultaneously was also one of the industry's biggest flops. My name is Mike Thompson, and I'm joined by my co-host, the crusher of canon continuities, Jessica Frazier. Hey, hey. But, because this episode's theme... We're also doing a crossover. We are joined by Brad and Lisa Gullickson, who host the amazing podcast, Comic Book Couples Counseling. Hello. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. We could not be more excited to be here. I swear upon the Justice Stone that we will do a good job for you. Oh, that Brad always always going for those stones. I love my Justice Stone. <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual, and we're so excited to have you guys here. We mentioned your show on here before but would you be willing to tell our listeners about it before we get started? Absolutely. So on Comic Book Couples Counseling, what we do is we take an iconic comic book couple like Scott Summers and Jean Grey, and we pair them with the relationship book that they need, like the five love languages. And we apply the book to their relationship to make their relationship better and in turn our marriage better. Did I nail it, Brad? Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good podcast. Ooh, I'd listen better. to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we actually begin talking about Deathmate, which it's a thing, normally we start off the show talking about one cool comic that we've read lately, but because this episode is actually going to be dropping on Thanksgiving, Brad and Lisa, what is one comic that you are thankful for? One comic is so mm -hmm. hard. It, 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 it's, and you know, I'm the type of nerd when someone asks me like, name me the one thing. I'm like, well, I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you five. But I've told <laughs> myself that I won't do that, that I will, I will adhere. I'm a guest on this podcast. This is your show. I got, they, they want to know one comic that I'm thankful for. So I'm going to stick to the one comic. And that is Mike Mignola's Hellboy. It is, a comic that I cherish for a variety of reasons. I think that it is an excellent exploration of mythology and history and genre while also being an utterly beautiful comic when illustrated by Mike Mignola. I, I like all the other, you know, non-Mignola Hellboy stories. And I love Duncan Fergredo on The Wild Hunt. But when I think Hellboy... I think things like The Corpse, I think about The Wolves of St. August, I think about Hellboy in Hell, the conclusion to the series. And it's a book that I return to, if not every year, every other year. In lockdown, I read it in 2020. And it's one of those comics where, you know, if you live in it long enough, when you reach its end in Hellboy in Hell, if we can call that an ending, it will bring you to tears. And I, I got very, very weepy on my last full read through of Hellboy. So yeah, that's the comic I'm most thankful for, for Thanksgiving. Nice. The comic I'm most thankful for is 
Dan Slott and Mike Allred's Silver Surfer run, in particular for the character of Don Greenwood. And anybody who's listened to anything I've ever done in any interview I've ever done, I've always mentioned this comic and this character because she is so extraordinarily special to me because her superpower is her ordinariness and her willingness to help. So she gets to go on all of these wonderful adventures, but instead of being like, I'm one of the cool kids, I'm hanging out with Silver Surfer, she looks around and goes like, what can I do? How can I be of service? And reading that run has influenced how I choose to look at at myself in the world, how I choose to use my superpowers. It's also the relationship that inspired the Comic Book Couples Counseling podcast that made me want to explore these superhero couples. But it took 50 episodes before we actually covered them on the podcast. I wanted to wait until we were at full power. I wanted to cut my teeth on... uh, Scott Summers and Jean Grey. (laughs) Before I got to my OTP. But yeah, that's what I'm most excited about. Because it's Thanksgiving, we should also mention that one of our listeners, Anthony, is doing Rad's Giving, where he reads this particular run of Silver Surfer every year around Thanksgiving. He reads the entire run. And so if you use the hashtag RadsGiving, as in Norrin Rad, you'll see how he is progressing on that read-through or how he progressed on that read-through anyway. That's awesome. How many issues is that? I haven't read that run. See, it's a hard thing to say, like, how many issues it is because, like, Secret Wars happens in the middle of it and there's a renumbering. Mm. It's a thick stack of comics. I would say it's Mm 20-something. It's not, what is it? It's four trade paperbacks? No, it's five trade paperbacks. So with, what, five issues each? You do the math. I'm an English major. I don't do math. Uh, Ah, relatable. Yeah, Yeah, I haven't read Silver Surfer since the 90s when Ron Lim was still doing the art for it. Love all that stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of my favorite comics when I was growing up. One of the things that breaks my heart is in continuity now, they often do not acknowledge the existence of Don Greenwood. Lisa got so mad reading Silver Surfer Black. I could not continue (laughs) reading. And, you know, like, it's just, you know, not my continuity. Yeah, yeah. Because they acknowledge the existence of Don, but in a really, like, dismissive way. Yeah. (laughs) And it is unfortunate because, you know, like, I, I think that that character did so much. Don Greenwood did so much for who Silver Surfer should be going forward. You would like her life to have informed his current life. And I would love to see Marvel attempt that in some way. I think it's totally possible. They should hire Brad and Lisa to write <laughs> that comic. Yeah. Uh, we could do it. But I also understand that, you know, Allred and Slot they have such ownership over that character that I bet you they don't really want other people to muck it up either. And we don't want other people to muck it up either. So it's difficult. It's challenging. Yeah. Sometimes we got to just take what we got. Mm-hmm. All right, Jessica, how about you? Well, I was thinking back to childhood and hands down, I think I'm most thankful for the Peanuts comics from Charles mm-hmm. Schultz and I'm fortunate, and and Mike actually is from around here as well, but I'm fortunate to have grown up near Schultz's studio in California, where there is now a museum, as well as an ice rink that's been open since 1969. And so I have incredibly fond memories of going to see Snoopy on ice, having birthday parties there, 
as well as just regularly going to skate for fun and going to the museum for fun. And peanuts were also the first comic I received as a young kid. And my parents got my brother and I both peanuts anthology books one year, I believe, for Christmas. And I remember reading it again and again. And I also used to tear through the Sunday newspaper, much to the chagrin of my father, to get to the funnies (laughs) so I could (laughs) check out the weekly Peanuts comic. So all in all, Charlie Brown, Snoopy and the rest of the gang hold just such a, a very special place in my heart. I come from a comic strip household as well. Like I didn't start reading stapled comics until I was an adult and like my parents still have a ritual where each of them reads the funnies and then point out to each other which ones they think are hilarious and and uh, I, and we still fall into that rhythm whenever we visit the first place i sit is at the newspaper to check out the funnies that's rad well mine is actually a lesser known comic it's called atomic robo it's written by Brian Clevenger, and it's illustrated by Scott Wagner. It's this very fun comic about an atomic-powered robot named Robo who was built by Nikola Tesla, and then it follows his action science adventures across his century or so of life. And notable adventures include battling this Cthulhu-like being alongside Carl Sagan, or dealing with the ghost of Thomas Edison, or getting trapped inside a hollow earth by this gun-toting velociraptor named Dr. Dinosaur. And sometimes the stories are really fun. Sometimes they're sweet. Sometimes there's this like little bit of sadness mixed in. But my stepson didn't really used to be that much into reading. And this was, I think, the first comic I gave him. And he's since then become like this voracious reader. And he just devoured all of the Atomic Robo stuff. And as a result, I've been able to find this like common ground with him talking about books like this and others. And it's been really special for me to have that connection with him. That's awesome. So I've never read Atomic Robo, but I've always been curious about it. And the vibe that I get from my flip throughs is it feels a little bit like the Rocketeer meets Hellboy. Is that true or no? Yeah. And then mix in Jerry Duggan when he's being really funny. Uh, Interesting. Interesting. Okay. That is a comic that I really want to get into, as is Peanuts. Because I'm very (laughs) thankful that Lisa did not out me and my family, but we were not a newspaper strip family. And because I started with Staple Comics so young, I was always very snooty and anti-newspaper strips. But in recent years, I've learned the error of my ways and I've started to collect and enjoy newspaper comics in book form, (laughs) the Mm. the way that I'm comfortable with them. You know, and one of the things I really like about strip comics is that it feels more like, and I know you could do this with certain staple comics, but it feels more like you can just jump in and out Mm. instead of having to know some sort of a continuity. (laughs) You're familiar with the characters, you're familiar with who they are, and it's really just either like a slice of life or it's, you know, it's something happening to the characters, but you don't have to necessarily be like omnipresent. So what you're saying is we need a death mate newspaper strip. Like they got three panels. That's all you get, Mike Mark Silvestri. Well, and there are strips that do follow a timeline and and they do follow like a plot that you kind of need to be there for every piece. But that's not the vibe of Peanuts. It just exists, you know? 
Yeah. Like, we would always skip, like, the serious comics. So, like, we would skip, like, the Spider-Man <laughs> comics until one day I was, like, a teenager and I found out that my dad reads the comics in entirety. He doesn't just read the funny ones. And I was shocked and horrified. <laughs> the serious stuff's what I love, like Prince Valiant and all the like Wally Wood stuff. The, the and- one about See? the guy who just explores nature. <laughs> oh, one. what was it? Mary Worth was that oh, yep. one where it was yep. like a soap opera and then Terry yeah. and the Pirates as well? Yeah. yeah. Terry and the Pirates yep. is oh. so good. Yeah. That I love that. Those are also the ones I skipped. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good okay so bridging off of that topic of confusing continuities and readers coming in cold should we start talking about deathmate i guess (laughs) i can't wait (laughs) so a few episodes back when we were talking about marvel's christian comics jessica do you remember me mentioning how image comics was formed Absolutely. So from what I recall, in 1992, Marvel's top artists decided to dip out and form their own company, Image, as they were freelancers and unhappy with the compensation from Marvel. And Marvel, who was already on unsteady ground at that point, found that it had direct competition from the amazing talent it used to employ. All these superstar artists did something really new and exciting. They suddenly had the rights to their characters but had them all existing in this loosely shared universe. So now I'm going to mention another name, which is Jim Shooter. What do you remember about him? From what I remember, he ended up kind of regrounding Marvel after its rocky point in the 90s, but also seemed to be pretty pushy in his work as an editor. I also remember that he didn't want to alienate other religions by establishing Marvel as a Christian universe, which I really respect. I mean, they still went on and did a bunch of Christian comics through the brand, but I dig him pushing against the narrative that everything needs to be so Jesus-washed. Yeah. So, okay, now here's where things like really start to get interesting. Shooter's time at the helm was definitely this unquestionable commercial success period for Marvel. But like you said, he was also really upsetting a lot of the creatives there by insisting on editorial having final control of the books and also being really strict with deadlines. So... A bunch of those creatives left for DC or other companies. And Jim Shooter himself, he wound up getting fired from Marvel in 1987. And then Shooter didn't exactly take this lying down, and he had a plan to get back at Marvel. So at this point, Marvel Entertainment was owned by New World Entertainment, which was itself going through some major financial issues. And it was starting to sell off its various properties. Shooter and this other guy, Stephen Mazarski, led this group of investors the next year in an attempt to actually buy Marvel. And that didn't actually work out. They were the second highest bidder, and this corporate raider named Ron Perlman got Marvel for $82.5 million, which is about $190 million today, which is way less than what Disney paid for them. Perlman eventually sold Marvel in the late 90s, and I want to take a quick side note. He's a pretty controversial figure for a lot of the stuff he did as a corporate raider, and Marvel wound up entering bankruptcy under his ownership, which is why Marvel wound up selling off all the film rights to the various characters to different studios, and that's why the MCU was such just a scattered mess for a long time. And Disney's been like basically going on their own version of the Thanos quest to regather all the Infinity Stones where they're gathering the rights back up to all these different characters. (laughs) You know? (laughs) But anyway, so Shooter and his investors decided to pull a Bender B. Rodriguez, and they vowed to build their own comics company, one that was more successful than Marvel. With blackjack and hookers. In fact, forget the blackjack. 
but <laughs> sorry, I love Futurama. I'm going to make a lot of Futurama references whenever I can. <laughs> but for a brief period of time, it looked like they were actually going to pull that off. They formed a company called Voyager Communications, and they started publishing stuff under the Valiant Comics banner in 1989. And their first stuff was licensed books featuring characters from Nintendo and WWF, which would eventually become WWE Wrestling. Matt Dorville wrote this really great feature for sci-fi.com. We'll put it in the show notes. It's called A Brief History of Valiant Comics from Birth to Bloodshot. And it reveals that the early Nintendo books flopped because of A, a high price point, according to Shooter, and then Nintendo refused to market the books, even though they'd originally agreed to. So Valiant ended up losing around $3 million in the first couple of years of operation. And then in 1991, Valiant started launching superhero comics that they were pulling top talent away from Marvel, like Barry Windsor Smith and Bob Layton to do. They originally licensed some of the old gold key comics characters from the 1960s, like Magnus Robot Fighter, Dr. Solar Man of the Atom, Turok Son of Stone, and then they also started launching original comics like Eternal Warrior, Shadow Man, Exo Manowar, and Harbinger. And as opposed to image comics, these book stories were really tightly woven together to create a very solid superhero universe that felt really unified. And Valiant's books were initially launched to small to middling print runs. I think these early books were typically seeing around 50,000 issues published, but they were getting a lot of acclaim and then they became super sought after because there weren't as many copies on the market. So in 1992, Valiant got named by Diamond Distributors as the best publisher with a market share under 5%. And then in 93, they took best publisher with a market share over 5%. And I think that was the first time that award hadn't gone to Marvel or DC ever. And they proved really popular and their books were viewed as, as highly collectible. Wizard Magazine actually named Harbinger number one as the collectible comic of the decade. <laughs> like it's, and it still goes for like over a hundred bucks. I was looking this up. Crazy. Yeah. Jessica, you weren't reading comics at this point in time, right? So you don't really have a lot no. of awareness of Valiant in the 90s. No, not this type of comic, no. Yeah. Okay, so Brad and Lisa, were you reading comics at this point in time? Like, do you remember the speculation boom going on around this era? No, I don't. I was not reading stable comics. I was reading the funny papers, and that was it. Okay. I, yeah. I, I, 1993, I would have been in third grade. Yeah, well, I was a little older. Yeah. And I was way into comics at this point. I mean, I came into comic books just before Image launched. And I mean, I remember standing in line to get Spawn 1. I remember standing in line to get Youngblood 1. And the first comic I ever spent a significant amount of money on when I was, I don't know, 11, 12 years old was... The first issue, and I can't even remember, and I did no research before coming onto this <laughs> podcast, but it was the issue where Turok the Dinosaur Hunter joined the Valiant Universe. It wasn't a Dell book. It was like the, his first appearance within the Valiant Universe. And I was at a convention that was in the basement of a Holiday Inn in Manassas, Virginia, and I begged my dad to give me $60 of his cash so I could buy this single-issue comic and my dad, God bless him, was very encouraging of my comic book habit, considering, especially since like, he had no interest in comics, but he loved that I was reading comics because before comics, I wasn't reading anything. And he took me to the first comic book store. He bought my first comics and he bought my first expensive comic, the $60 
Turok. I wanted to say it's a Magnus the Robot Fighter comic, but it is. It's, I think it's Magnus the Robot Fighter 12. Thank you. All right. Yeah. So we bought it in that Holiday Inn basement in Manassas, Virginia. And I cherished that thing. And I bought all the Valiant comics. I was way into all of that stuff. I was way into Image. I ha- I still have all of it. And that's why I live in a mansion today. Uh, because <laughs> I have all that stuff. I built the foundation of my mansion. The, the foundation of the, the Gullickson mansion is entirely long boxes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I have a deep fondness for all things Valiant and for all things Image Comics, even though they are not the books that I tend to revisit. And I had not read these Deathmate comics since whenever they were published, whatever year that was. But he did buy two copies of them. But at the time I did buy two copies. So I was able to give Lisa- His and hers. uh, His and her set. So I was very proud of myself. His and hers, Deathmate. What what, is that the 57th anniversary is the his and hers copies of Deathmate? Yes. What number would we equate Rob Liefeld with? (laughs) (laughs) 69, dudes. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's exactly what number. It's so extreme. (laughs) Oh, my God. With a capital X. God. Uh, (laughs) So, yes, I remember them. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that was an uncomfortably close mirroring of my early experience with comics as well, because I got into them right around the same period. Sometimes I would buy four copies where I'm like, I'm going to have one for myself and one to read. And then I'm going to have two copies that I can sell. They're all worthless. Like, I'm pretty sure I don't have any of those left anymore. But that is very reminiscent of my early collecting days as a kid. Well, I'd be happy to send you some of mine if you're missing any Valiant or Image. (laughs) If you need like one or two or 20 Angela first appearances, just let me know. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. He'll be the solar to your void. He will <laughs> He will fill in those holes. No. no. <laughs> oh, oh. I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable with that euphemism. <laughs> You're welcome. You can edit it out later. <laughs> that's fine. Oh, we're keeping no, that's it. Cool. Oh, I'm yeah. editing this. You're editing yeah, I, it in. <laughs> I have no control over this. <laughs> nope. It's all me, baby. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the early 90s were when there was this huge speculation bubble that eventually imploded, and we'll get to the fallout later, but here was the setup. I found this really great article from comicbook.com where they interviewed Jeff Smith, who is the owner of the Comic Hunter, which originally opened in 1989, and it's called Revisiting the 90s Speculative Boom That Nearly Ended the Comic Book Industry, Part 1. Jessica, take it away. All of a sudden, the world of comic books was being wrapped up in nostalgia investing, as baby boomers, who were entering their prime income earning potential, began spending money on items that allowed them to recapture some of their youth. The media helped with the mania, constant stories of people getting rich off their collections, recalls Smith. With such venerable papers as the Wall Street Journal touting card collecting as a sound investment... (laughs) And with cards and comics fetching five and six figure sums, who could argue with that? <laughs> you know, I've actually tried to find any Wall Street Journal articles touting card collecting as a wise <laughs> investment, but their online archives only go back to the late 90s. So we're out Even of Even they're there. embarrassed about that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Even Rupert Murdoch doesn't want to have them fess up to that. <laughs> <laughs> He's got his pogs all in a vault. Nobody I know. touch my pogs. <laughs> 
the slammer is worth more than your life. God, I miss pogs. Oh, Sarah still has some, I think. I still have some. God, I wish I did. I do uh, not. So all this said, this is how wild the comics industry was at the time. How many different publishers do you think started up between 1990 and 1993? Ooh, gosh, that's a darn good question. Like a ton, a bajillion. Yeah. <laughs> You're not off or far I'm off. Gonna do, uh, I'm going to say $1 and just <laughs> okay. hedge on him being way over. <laughs> okay. Jessica? I'm going to say 150 Okay, not quite that many, but there were 24 different publishers Hooray! that started up and tried to break into the market. So, Lisa, you win because you didn't go over. What, what? <laughs> but, yeah, almost none of them lasted. Image and Valiant were definitely the ones that were really dominating the scene at the moment. But Image hadn't done a real crossover event, and Valiant, the previous year in 1992, had. They had hit a home run with this label-wide event called Unity. And one of their major hooks was that the first issue was like absolutely free. You could just pick up a copy for free. And then in order to understand what was actually going on, readers had to purchase every chapter of the story, which I think actually was an issue from every Valiant series at the time. So it was like, okay, you just read this issue of Solar Man of the Atom number 10, I think. And then it was continued in maybe Eternal Warrior number whatever, and then Ryan the Future Force, and so on and so forth. And it's a pretty tightly connected story. I actually, this year, as part of my quarantine reading, I picked up the trade paperbacks of all of the Unity crossover, which is four volumes, and it's really very linear. Like, if you miss an issue, you're going to be really confused. Hmm. So just trying to read Unity Zero, which is the free issue, and then Unity Number One, which is the final issue you're not going to have any idea what's going on. <laughs> I had him. I still yeah. have that. What am I talking about? <laughs> One of my prized possessions is the red edition of Unity Zero that I picked up for a pittance. And it's one of those slabbed books. So it's got like a really high number grade. Huh. Like I don't normally pick up slabbed books, but I found it for almost nothing. And <laughs> I was like, all right, fine. But yeah. So... Unity was Valiant's equivalent of Crisis on Infinite Earths. It was this huge commercial success. It dropped some major bombshells, like it revealed that Magnus Robot Fighter was actually the baby born to a couple of the Harbinger team members, and that he had been displaced in time by Solar, who was still around both in 1992 and then in the year 4000 AD when Magnus and Rai were taking place. And then right after this, Jim Shooter actually was ousted from the publisher. So everyone was super curious to see what was going to happen next. And then it was revealed that it wouldn't be just any crossover. It would be this multi-publisher crossover. And according to Bob Layton, who was serving as Valiant's editor-in-chief after Shooter, the crossover was arranged by Jim Lee and Steve Mazarski because they were really tight friends. And meanwhile, Rob Liefeld, who's going to pop up multiple times throughout this episode, has a podcast where he devotes an entire episode to Deathmate. And in the midst of his very meandering storytelling, he basically says he's the one who actually started the whole thing because he pitched a Youngblood bloodshot crossover based on the tagline he came up with, this blood's for you, which is <sighs> a, it's a play on the old Budweiser ads from the time. <laughs> so good. What a genius. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I know, right? And he also states that it became this giant crossover event and he didn't really have any interest in it because he just wanted to do a one-shot issue crossover. And I've got my own personal feelings about Liefeld, 
but he's a pretty sketchy information source objectively. <laughs> like, we only have his word to go on that version of the story, and it's best to take this with a grain of salt. And we're going to come back to that later on. So, Brad, do you remember what the big image books were at the time? Well, I mean, you know, do I remember them at the time of Deathmate? It's hard for me to say so. I do know that, you know, Wildcats was huge for me, yep. although apparently Wildcats did not sell as well as like Youngblood or Spawn. Mm -hmm. Spawn was always my, my like that was my image comic. He got in yeah. trouble with his mom because he scraped the name Spawn into his nice bedroom furniture. I did. No. So his childhood bed says Spawn on it in huge letters. <laughs> okay, which being older and having Spawn on your bed is really actually very funny. Uh, and here's so. the thing. So, all right, I got into so much trouble carving Spawn into my bed, right? But my parents sold the bed, but what did they do? They took a saw and they sawed out the chunk of wood where the word Spawn is. And they kept that because it's now a cherished memory for them, but it was a brutal <laughs> night for me. And so now like- Only child. Go, Everything he does is precious. <laughs> oh yeah, That's of true. course. That's true. But I go over there now and I see this hunk of wood that says Spawn on it. And I was like, like you know, that was- I got into so much trouble. You grounded me, guys. And now it's like this heirloom. You're just like, maybe this is a precious memory that we don't actually yeah. need to call back on. Yeah. So Spawn That's was great. huge for me. And I think it's also one of the reasons why I was not as into Deathmate at the time. Because I remember buying Deathmate and being disappointed with it, especially how they deal with Al Simmons and the Spawn character. Oh, yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, so like those were big. Savage Dragon, of course, he doesn't show up in Deathmate. Yep. But what was hilarious about rereading Deathmate was remembering all the characters I had a vague memory of and I had forgotten about, like Union. Mm -hmm. Well, like every other extreme character, like Brigade. I was like, oh, Brigade. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I vaguely remember Brigade. Remember Bloodstrike? And Bloodstrike, yeah, with its cover that had like blood gloss on it, textual Yeah, with blood. thermographic ink that you would actually rub and then the blood would go away. Oh, thermographic God. ink. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> Ooh, I got to go read all that stuff. I'm sure it's really good. Uh, spoiler, it's real bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've been rereading a lot of the stuff and it's... Ooh, I, Sorry, I don't want to burst your bubble, but it's okay. I let Mike do a lot of my pre-reading. <laughs> Sometimes he steers me away from things. It's very nice. Yeah. Okay. So even though this was an image valiant crossover, several of Image's co-founders actually refused to participate in it. Eric Larson, Todd McFarlane, and Jim Valentino wanted absolutely nothing to do this. So George Corey wrote this really great book called Image Comics, The Road to Independence, and it features a ton of firsthand interviews with both the company founders and other creatives who worked at the studios. And in this book, Eric Larson was asked directly about why he didn't participate in Deathmate, and this was his response. Brad, this one's on you. Because I hated Valiant Comics. I just thought they did shitty, ugly comics. I didn't read anything that came out of that company. Why would we do a crossover with this company that just does this wretched shit? Jesus. <laughs> Don't tell you really feel, Eric. <laughs> and I have to say, I've met Eric Larson 
twice. And one time was we went to Flying Colors in Concord, which Joe Field, the owner of Started Free Comic Book Day, and he had Eric doing a signing. And Eric actually, when he heard that my stepson had won a prize at the county fair that year for his drawing of Spider-Man, he pulled out the Bristol board of the art for Spider-Man he was doing because he was coming back to Marvel for that. And he spent a good minute just showing him like what it's like to work in comics with the giant pieces of Bristol board. And he took a picture with him. He was a sweetheart. That's awesome. And that said, I fucking love that quote. I think it's great. (laughs) It's a great quote. It's a great quote. (laughs) But yeah, like they, they had this huge crossover happening and they couldn't use Savage Dragon. They couldn't use Spawn. They couldn't use Shadowhawk because several of the founders wanted nothing to do with this. And Deathmate itself was still set up to be this monster event like nothing else the comic industry had seen. Actually, ahead of the comics launching, the companies put together the Deathmate tour, which was they rented the Black Crows tour bus, apparently, and then drove it <laughs> all the over the country. That is the most thing ever. <laughs> right? And like they would stop at various comic stores, and they had an actual music tour manager apparently overseeing the whole thing, and then different creators from both Image and Valiant would jump on and off at different points. And they had a Deathmate tour book that sold for like four bucks. And it was just creator biographies and art inside. It had Dude, no I've got it right connection. here. I yeah. have it. It's, it. it is just that. It is really weak biographies. I, I was so mad. I remember buying it. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is like, <laughs> there's no comic in this. I don't understand this. And Todd McFarlane actually talked about it in The Road to Independence. And he noted that, quote, they were touring and promoting a book that nobody had drawn. It was insane. <laughs> and the big thing was that basically this was something for people to sign. And so you can find tons of signed copies of this for sale these days, and they go for almost nothing. So if you really love some of these 90s <laughs> artists and you want something that they've signed, go on eBay and look up the Deathmate tour book. Amazing. That said, another side note is that in 2018, Joe Quesada tweeted this amazing story about the tour. Jessica, it's all you. During the Deathmate bus tour, we hit a heat wave in California. One of the stores we were all signing at was an oven, and the lines were huge, making it that much harder. Don Panosian was right there as well, sitting two seats away from me. There was a little boy in line complaining to his dad that he wasn't feeling well, but dad asked him to rough it out, which he did, dot, dot, dot. Until he got right in front of Dan and projectile vomited all over the table. I've never seen a group of out of shape comic creators move that fast. After the kid was helped out and the dust settled, Jimmy Palmiotti and I could see one of the store employees wiping the vomit right off those bad boy chromium covers. They were good as new and we kept signing. FYI, that was an insane road trip. I wonder how much those issues are worth. I know, right? The puke issues. Because they're extremely, hopefully extremely rare. God, I hope so. But yeah, like, and I mean, like, again, like, what a 90s callback. Chromium covers, which was a thing that that Valiant really pioneered. And right, what's crazy is right after, when they cleaned all of the the puke off of those comics, Alanis Morissette pops out. Isn't that ironic, she said. The most 90s 90 thing that ever 90 Oh. Okay, so in the background of this tour that was going on, the comic was already having production problems, and this was even before the first issue. So one of the industry legends surrounding Deathmate is that Rob Liefeld was so far behind on pages for the Deathmate prologue issue that Bob Layton personally flew out 
sat on Liefeld's front door and wouldn't leave until he got those pages handed over to him. And then he had to ink the pages in an Anaheim hotel room. <laughs> it's one of the things where anyone that knows anything about Deathmate immediately will share that story. <laughs> but at the same time, it feels a little bit too hyperbolic to be true. But Liefeld actually acknowledged this happened. In his episode about Deathmate, he says Leighton was assigned to ink his pages and Liefeld didn't actually like Leighton's ink style, so he just didn't send the pages in. And he had the inkers at his own studio, which was Extreme Studios, that's what it was called, do as many pages as they could before they had to hand over the rest to Leighton before he got into town. He had this to say, actually, about it. Lisa, if you want to read this quote. Bob is a great artist, and I was doing great work. We just weren't a great mix. It's honestly it's kind of astounding how unapologetic he is even 30 years later. Like I would love an artist edition of death mate because I'd really like to get in on those inks on the prologue page. Cause you know, it's Bob Layton inking with Danny Meeky and Dan Panosian. And just looking at it, I feel like I know which ones, if any are uh, Danny Meeky and Dan Panosian, but like what, where's the Bob Layton ones? Yeah, I don't really know. And the problem is that I'm not familiar enough with their styles to really call it out or identify it. Uh, We we need that artist edition. Yeah, I know. Well, so now let's get over to Deathmate itself. We've set the stage, so now the curtain can rise. (laughs) All right, so Brad and Lisa, how many issues of Deathmate are there? Uh, Including the tour book? Yes, let's uh, go with the tour book. Let's see. I believe, and I believe there is the prologue. So that's one black, mm-hmm. uh, yellow, blue, red, and epilogue. So that's six issues plus the tour book. And there is uh, the Deathmate Green, which was like five pages, literally five pages stapled together. Mm-hmm. So that comes out to like six point seven five <laughs> issues. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like <laughs> let's call it six and a half issues. Yeah, plus the tour book, so seven and a half. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's more. (gasps) What? Aside from the prologue and the issues you mentioned, there are two versions of the green preview. Then there was Previews Magazine. They put out another preview issue that was pink. I don't know how you got that one. I just know that they're floating around now. But on top of that, the same issue was printed in Previews Magazine as orange. Oh. And it turns out this is the one that's really rare oh. because what happened was it was only printed in previous magazine. And if you see a loose copy floating around, the odds are that it was actually pulled or cut out of that magazine. So its quality is considered pretty drastically reduced. There were a few that were not bound into the book and they're floating out in the wild. And I've seen them going for hundreds of dollars online. I wound up finding one really cheap. I don't know how I got it that cheap, but it's weird. And how much is my advanced comics one worth? Probably about 10 or 15 bucks. Oh, I'm Someone to will sell. give you 10 or 15 bucks <laughs> to not take that comic from you. <laughs> oh my God. Tell me about it. Yeah. So then aside from the regular issues that we got, there were also gold versions. Ooh. So I really like collecting weird, obscure things. And so I actually have all of these issues. And it's both a point of pride and a point of shame. And then finally, the last thing that they did was they actually did a white cardstock cover 
of the prologue that they were sending out to people and they were giving out at conventions that you could then take around and have people sign. It's one of those things where, like the rest of this crossover, there is so much more going on that just the general public didn't know about. And personally, I feel like the story about what was going on behind the scenes is actually much more fascinating than the books themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a given. But, you know, I think there's a lot to say about the content within. I had a good time reading these again. <laughs> I'm not sure Lisa did based on those <laughs> tweets we were seeing. <laughs> we had I, fun together. There you go. Okay. There you go. Very diplomatic of you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So one of the main criticisms about Deathmate was that it's unreadable. It didn't make any sense when it came out. But there was a user on the Valiant Fans Forum in 2017 who revealed they'd actually pieced together a reading order. And I reread the books in this order, and it makes more sense. I'm not going to say it's completely better, but it lines up with how the overall stories and then character development progress, which was you read the prologue first, and then you read the green preview, and then you read red, and then the pink or orange preview, and then yellow, blue, black, and then the epilogue. Well, we did not read it like that. It's <laughs> you read it as God intended. Yeah, I mean that's how I read it, and it, it did make a little bit more of a streamlined sense because, like, one of the previews had one of the characters that kind of gets introduced, and then you see him a lot in the next one, and so it did yeah. help a little bit for that kind of continuity. But I, again, I stopped giving a fuck like part of the way through. <laughs> Brad showed me the green, was the five page green advanced thing, and I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot contain any more information. Oh, God. It was more character introduction, which was what half of those things were. Oh. It was just like all of these weird names. And I just was like, I'm not going to remember who any of you are. It's like walking into a party and just knowing you're not going to remember any of these new people's names. Yeah. That goes back to this crossover basically assumed that if you were reading it, you knew who every character was. Yeah. And that makes... That makes a bit of sense from Valiant's end because it was how they ran their universe at that point. Like everything was so tightly connected that you had a surface level of awareness of who the other characters were because they would all kind of interact with each other on a regular basis. Images Comics, on the other hand, had a much looser continuity. Like all of these characters lived in that same world, but they operated really separately. And there's no introduction to really any of these characters through Deathmate. So God help you if you weren't already reading books from Image and Valiant. And I guess at this point, we should start talking about the issues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, Brad and Lisa, you want to give us a setup for the story of the prologue? You go, Lisa, I think, because you took so many notes. <laughs> I don't want to deny you the pleasure of laying it all out there, because you clearly understand it all. Okay, so in the Deathmate prologue, Solar, who is also named Phil. Now, I went in knowing nothing about the Valiant character's or the image characters. So this is mm -hmm. very exciting for me. But Solar, who is also named Phil, his wife, Gail, was majorly depressed and suicidal because Solar's powers had extended her life unnaturally. So everyone mm -hmm. she knows, her entire family, has now passed, and she doesn't want to continue anymore. And she asks him to let her go. and he, But he's, like, afraid of being entirely alone but then she says like maybe once you let me go you'll be able to find someone who is more like yourself so she says goodbye and he lets her go and is completely devastated 
And at that moment, he feels something unusual, which is he calls it another schizoid episode. I have no idea what the first schizoid episode was, but it was decades ago. But he infers that it is the depth of his grief that has split him in twain, in two. Mm -hmm. And so the part of him that was without pain could continue to explore other dimensions and perhaps find love again. And this second version of himself has like these, he's like a silver fox. Yeah. He doesn't have the skull. Yeah. And he has these hip like futuristic. And I think he had a a leather jacket too. He he? does. He does have a leather jacket. Cool jacket. In my notes, I differentiate him by calling him cool solar. (laughs) Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. so he goes into unreality And he senses this woman who seems to be at the center of coexisting probabilities. And she seems like confused and disoriented, but he infers that she is void and becomes very horny for her. And he compliments her beauty. And despite her reservations about their relationship screwing up multiple universes, they start entwining and become one. Boy, yo, 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 (laughs) yo. And their climax shatters multiple realities. It's a great splash page. It, it, it's fantastic. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so then we meet Jeff, a geomancer. Though if we pronounce it geomancer, perhaps he is geoff. Geoff. That's how geomancer? I always pronounced it when I was a kid. Like when I was reading it, I was like, no, it's geoff, right? Like I... <laughs> the only reason I know it's Jeff is because of Ace of Cakes. What oh, of- no, nice. Jeffrey the Giraffe, oh. Toys R Us. Okay, well, I, I'm going to call him Jeff. Yeah, he's Jeff. Yeah. Okay. Jeff the Jeff. Um, but he has a dream about all of these realities blending together. Hardcore, wildcat, wildcore, hardcats, which ends <laughs> with the angry face of Supreme and the notion of this great battle that ends the future. And it's all Solar's fault. And Jeff wakes and realizes that the dream just wasn't just a dream. And he runs into a team calling themselves the Berserkers. And they all seem to recognize him, but to him, they're strangers. And then he's approached by John Prophet, who is also aware of this disturbance and that there is no future. And he starts punching up Berserkers. And John tells Jeff that they're not of the same universe. Their worlds had merged. And the end of all time is at hand. And that's Mm -hmm. it. That's everything that happens in the prologue. Yeah, that is a very accurate summary. Thank you. So I have a question for the image expert in the room. (laughs) Oh, God. You know, when he when cool solar meets void, is that panel where like reality is shattering around her? Is that from the first issue of Wildcats? Is that from an earlier moment within the Wildcats comic book continuity? So I don't think so. But what I do remember is that later on, Warren Ellis was writing The Authority and then he had the bleed. It was reality between the walls of reality. I was getting flashbacks to that when I was reading this. Mm. But yeah, Void, you know, it's been a while since I read Wildcats, but Void was very much like Solar Man of the Atom where she was this otherworldly being who had very nebulously described energy and and reality based powers and then yeah and then the other thing is that it's like also that story was taking place in like 2060 or 2064 right 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 that would throw things off yeah so i yeah 
I don't know. <laughs> One thing I regretted as I was reading these was that I didn't pay better attention to the dates. Like when I see numbers in a comic, I just see squiggles. I'm like, these odd shapes are meaningless to me. And I wish I had paid better attention. Yeah. And the other thing is that there's this weird blending of things with Solar because he was originally a character from the 60s by Gold Key Comics. And his name was Phil Selesky. He was a scientist who was granted godlike powers because of a nuclear reactor accident. And then his girlfriend's name was Gail. So I didn't think to check this, but basically it was implying that they had been a couple for roughly 100 years and then he had kept her eternally youthful during this whole time. Got it. And later in the Deathmate series, Master Dark makes a reference as if he helped Solar keep Gale alive or bring her back the first time. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly what that was about because I haven't found that as I've been rereading my various Valiant issues. I have the entire collection of 90s Solar Man of the Atom. I haven't gotten my way all the way through it yet. So maybe later on, Master Dark actually shows up and resurrects Gale or something. I don't know. As a kid, Solar was always my favorite of the Valiant books. And I I hate that they're not collected and readily available because they're all in my long boxes in my parents' home. And I'd love to get back into those books. Yeah, well, we'll discuss it later on. But like the rights to that character are very convoluted at this point, too. Just because Valiant didn't actually own the rights they were licensing it. Right. So after the prologue, we go to the green preview, basically, in terms of like the order. And this is, again, like one of those five page comics, like you mentioned, Brad. And basically, it's Prophet teaming up with a different solar than the one we had previously met in the prologue. It's a solar from 70 years in the past before the one who wrecked reality. And they take down Erica Pierce, who was actually the big villain in that aforementioned Unity crossover that I brought up. And this was really to show that at the moment that Erica shows up in the past of her personal timeline and kicks off the events of Unity, Prophet and Solar are there to stop her. And then Prophet kills her with, I'm not making this up, a knife made from energy. And then he tells Solar that there's something far worse coming than Erica. And she was like an even more powerful version of Solar. And this was meant to show us that the story that we were about to experience was like a bigger deal than Unity. Hmm. And that's it. And then this leads us to the final bit with John Prophet, which is the red issue, which was one of the image books that was handled by Liefeld's Extreme Studios. The image books were notoriously behind schedule. The ones put out by them came out months later than they were supposed to. And again, we'll go into that later, but this is the issue where we're introduced to Liefeld's superhero team du jour, Youngblood. Only this time, they're not superheroes. They're this... I don't quite know how to describe them. They're kind of like corporate wetworks that work for Harada Corporation, and Harada was this nefarious group in Valiant, but they also happen to be sort of celebrities. And then the Valiant character Bloodshot is on their team, which was Liefeld's dream, according to his podcast. (laughs) And then after that, I get, like, Prophet is taken captive by Nightstrike, who serves as the Rebel Alliance to Harada's Galactic Empire. And then funnily enough, even though Todd McFarlane's spawn didn't appear in Deathmate, His alter ego, Al Simmons, did. And Al Simmons was the man that Spawn was before he died and was reborn as a Hellspawn. And it's kind of weird to see that after knowing all of the background drama, but I guess Liefeld got permission from McFarlane or somehow was able to finagle that. And then Nightstrike convinces Prophet to join their cause. 
prophet does, but he really just wants to get everyone to believe him that reality is suddenly not what it's supposed to be and try to solve that problem. He joins Nightstrike in ambushing Youngblood during a military parade honoring Harada in, I believe, the city of New Harada, which used to be New York. And then literally everyone dies except for Prophet. And then, like, that's kind of the end of the story. There's a line about how he's going to fight for a better future or something, but nothing else ever happens. And this is the moment where it sort of establishes that Deathmate was kind of like old Marvel what ifs or the DC Elseworlds stories, which is that the story isn't canon, so we're just going to kill everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so weird to me, this issue where we're going to show our best characters breaking the necks of this other company's best character. So, uh, well, Eternal Warrior, he can break Dutch. He breaks Badrock. Yeah, he breaks yeah. Badrock, but then Dutch can break Eternal Warriors. No, no. We don't actually see Eternal Warrior die. We just know that he dies. And that that's actually oh, yeah, that's what I'm right. really mad about because the Eternal Warrior is like my favorite comic. Eternal Warrior breaks Dutch's neck. It's so hard to keep track of all these characters. And then Shaft dies because he gets confused by Prophet's conversation and drives his bike right into a wall. What? It's a weird thing to do. Be like, we're so excited to bring these characters together. Now they're just going to kill each other. It's funny because, like, I'm being introduced to these characters, and so, and I'm, you know conscientiously like taking my notes and I'm like, Hmm, I wonder who this eternal warrior guy is. Very interesting. Turn the page. He's dead (laughs) off screen. And you know, it's funny because Jessica and I, one of our first episodes was about Highlander, which was a media brand that we both absolutely loved growing up. And so I immediately gravitated to eternal warrior because I love those stories about the guy who just sojourns through the centuries and, you know, picks up all this experience and it's kind of like terror the character that we talked about with D.G. Chichester, where, again, he is this person who has existed since time immemorial and has seen all of humanity rise and fall. And then, you know, it's so dumb because the Eternal Warrior just dies off screen, apparently, and (laughs) they find him. (laughs) It was a thing. I know. It was one of those, oh, no, even you moments. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. But the reason that the reader from the Valiant Fans Forum suggested that this be the first issue after the prologue that you read is because it continues the story with Prophet. And then also Harada at this point in time is still pretty villainous. And later on, he's not exactly not villainous, but he winds up helping everybody, sort of. So, you know, whatever. All right. And then after this, we get to the orange slash pink preview. There is a fight scene between Shadow Man and Archer, who were two of the characters from Valiant. And then Grifter who is one of the breakout image characters from Wildcats, who literally he wears a trench coat and a mask that he, it's not even like a full mask, it's like a bandana that he ties around his face. Like, interrupts the fight, makes things complicated when Archer steals his gun and shoots Shadow Man, and then it ends on a cliffhanger. And it's pretty obvious that this was cut from the Yellow Anthology issue since the Shadow Man and Grifter story picks up right after this ends. Like, it literally feels like it's the next panel. So, and that leads us into Blue and Yellow. Yeah, so next they suggest we roll into the Deathmate Yellow, which shows the consequence of the breaking of time and reality, with time basically eating reality from the future back, like in a very visible way. There's a ton of carnage, and at one point this guy is literally ripped in half at the torso, and tons of people are getting shot in the head or having multiple chunks out of their flesh due to bullet wounds, and 
it's so overkill that it verges <laughs> on being funny. I mean, <laughs> in my opinion. It also starts to introduce the characters who will be playing integral parts in writing what is wrong in the converging realities. Yeah. And then we roll directly into Deathmate Blue, which brings the reader through the journey back to Jeff, the geomancer, which I guess he has something to do with, like, looking psychically into the future or other worlds or is let's see if i'm right because this is what i i gathered from reading death mate that he Mm -hmm. can like read the earth so Mm -hmm. whatever happens in the like he can read the memories of horse whisperer but for for the the ground the whole earth the whole earth am i right am i right yeah they always build him as he speaks to the earth that was his power and so it was kind of it was kind of like a cosmic awareness almost like, you know, he could sit oh. there and talk to objects. He could hear the earth when things were going down. He could also feel its pain. And then the other thing is that it was geomancers were always normal humans who then became more in tune with what was going on with reality. And the eternal warrior eventually came to serve the line of geomancers and he became the fist of the earth or the <laughs> fist of the geomancers, one or the other. But so he was always really tightly interwoven with the geomancers. So Jeff. You know, now that we have a good explanation on what his gig is, he has a dream about the situation, the whole breaking of reality situation, and starts to go to see the people that he will need to help them with his mission and gain their help and getting access to a leader named, you know, Harada, Toya Harada. And there's a lot of fighting to get in, gnarly death scenes, as has been standard for this series. But Jeff gets in to see Harada, who then summons and then tell Solar about the other half of himself that's going to merge with Void in the future. So then they establish a team, and the last thing we see is Solar opening up a, a portal to unreality to kind of, I guess, go resolve the issue, seemingly. Yeah, and the thing is, is that because like time is more fluid or has no meaning there, it all seems to happen at once or whatever. And then the backstory with Toyo Harada is that he is an incredibly powerful psychic, so he's able to sit there and just learn about everything that's going on without a lot of exposition by just peering into Jeff's mind. Hickman rips this off in Powers of Ten House of X. He takes this entire scene between yep. Moira McTaggart and Professor X. It's, this is he, he ripped off Deathmate. How come this didn't get <laughs> memed? <laughs> well, yeah, and then the last thing is that Harada, if I remember right, basically like downloads all the information into solar without permission, by the way, consent is the thing Mm -hmm. that we need to acknowledge. And he goes and does that. And then solar goes and helps Supreme who was Rob Liefeld's version of Superman and eventually had like his own really cool series that was written by Alan Moore, but so good. It was great, but it's really interesting at the time. Supreme was just, it was like, Oh, that's a, a Superman knockoff. Okay. Whatever. And this is the first time we see Supreme with a beard, by the way. So, you know, hot silver fox daddy Supreme. <laughs> and that's and then he grabs Supreme and he's like, I need your help and let's let's go. And then right after that, we get Deathmate Black, which like I'm not gonna lie, Black, I think, is in quotes the best book of this crossover because Ooh. I think it's got the the best standalone story. Your face is telling a story there. I Brad. mean, I like I Brad had no patience for this issue. <laughs> We're different human <laughs> beings. We Ooh. we've lived different lives. Our context is different. So we're going to like different things. This is easily my least favorite Deathmate issue. 
because I find it so impossible to read. Mm. But it is a self-contained story. On the second pass with Lisa reading it to me in the car, I was able to understand it more. And okay, Lisa says I had no patience. And that is true because after like six or seven pages, I just started reading every fifth word. (laughs) There's a lot of exposition. Because I was so frustrated. (laughs) Like to me, you look at the image books, like the Deathmate image books, and they feel so in love with Chris Claremont's X-Men. Oh, yeah. And the only thing that they learned from Chris Claremont is words. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so they just, they crowd their art with so many captions and bubbles. It made me so mad. That being said, though, Brad, like, I felt like I got a better sense of the characters as individuals and their internal motivations in this Mm -hmm. comic, which I think is also very like Claremont, where it's just like everybody, every character has to have this like motivation. Is that true? I feel like I understand John Prophet through the other issues, and I feel like I get uh, solar. But do you have it spelled out for you? No, you do not. Well, yeah, okay. okay. I, I, I don't mind having things spelled out for me. I mean, like, my, my favorite Deathmate issues were the Bernard Chang issues, like the green mm-hmm. one, and then the first part of Deathmate Yellow. Yeah, okay. All right, all right. That's all, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like Bernard Chang's art a lot because... I mean, he did The Second Life of Dr. Mirage, which I believe you two are actually covering this month for your show. But yes, hopefully we have just launched our Dr. Mirage couple series. Awesome. I cannot wait to hear that. It's totally inspired and dedicated to you guys. It is. Oh, well, thank you. That was a really fun series to reread. And it makes me really happy to hear that like we were able to suggest something for you. I mean, we would not be covering it without you, Mike, uh, because of your Dr. Mirage love. It, it encouraged me to go to eBay and buy all the issues for a relatively cheap price. Yeah, it turns out 90s Valiant Comics, by and large, not that expensive. Attainable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to Deathmate Black, I guess. Yeah, so Black was handled by the teams under Jim Lee's Wildstorm imprint. And like I said, it's this fairly standalone story. It takes place in a dystopian St. Louis where all the metahumans have their powers dampened and they're under the control of a group called the Troika, which is this trio of established characters, Mother May I from Cyberforce, Exo Manowar, and Superstar from Hardcore, which those were two Valiant books. Exo Manowar had his own eponymous title. Hardcore, I don't really remember that much about. I think I have all the issues in some boxes of Valiant stuff I picked up. I think the idea was that they were specialists who could get powers granted to them one at a time by some central group. Yep. I think it's actually a pretty cool concept. There were a lot of really cool concepts with Valiant. Whether or not they pulled them off all the time is up for debate, but I think they had some really cool ideas. So this issue actually was the first appearance of J. Scott Campbell's Gen 13, which wound up being one of the more successful image properties in the 90s. The Troika uses this group called the Wild Corps as their soldiers, and they love their acronym. So there's there were the Hardcats, and then there were the Wildcore, which was a blending of Hardcore and Wildcats. And but what does were... it stand for? Wildcats was Covert Action Teams, and Hardcore, I don't remember what the acronym stood for with Hard. I don't... It was... And do they keep the acronym? So, like, is Hardcats the same as what it was for Hardcore and Wildcats? I yeah. did notice that between issues, the consistency of the initialization of things was uh, questionable. 
Like, yeah, it's not everybody agreed that everything was an acronym. Yeah. <laughs> so it's Harbinger Active Resistance Division. So uh, hard cats would be Harbinger Active Resistant Division Covert Action Teams. Hard cats. Feels very specific. God. It's too much. <laughs> yeah. Harbingers in the Valiant Universe were basically mutants mm -hmm. in the Marvel Universe. The whole thing was there were people who manifested superhuman abilities. So the Troika has the Wild Corps as their soldiers. This features a blend of Valiant and Wildstorm characters doing their best to crush everyone beneath their jackboots. And this is another story where characters know reality is wrong. And then there's a rebellion against the ruling power of a dystopian society. It introduces the character Union to the story. And Union had just been launched into the market a couple of months prior. And he's kind of a blend of Solar and Superman but with a bit more of that 90s extreme visual design. Like he had a cape and he had that like, I don't know how to describe that hairstyle, but it was kind of like puffed up under a headband. And then he had an energy staff and anyway, whatever. When Union was introduced, he, he was like introduced, like so apparently at the top of an enormous like St. Louis arch, there was like a group that was being held prisoner and they were all being fed energy off of Union. And, and his you, justice and stone. his cosmic no, they don't mention the justice stone. They just mention cosmic juice. Oh yeah. So I didn't know that union was a person. I thought that union was a substance. <laughs> so when mm. I got to the part where like we see union and all of the tubes coming off of him, I go like, union is not a drug. Union is a person. And Brad's like, yeah. And I'm like, they're. They're drinking his juice, his cosmic juice. And Brad's like, yeah, from his stone. And I was like, so they're all drinking the juice off of Union Stone? And it was so baffling to me. Yeah. And then the other thing is that they were using other established characters from Image. I don't quite remember how this worked, but somehow they were processing the energy from Union, I think, through these other characters who also had energy-based abilities. But also through Skycore, right? Yeah, and they were using it to keep the Skycore city above St. Louis, which is apparently built on top of a bigger version of the St. Louis Arch <laughs> over St. Louis. I don't know. It was weird. It makes no sense. I bet you St. Louis feels flattered, though. They never thought they'd be <laughs> the center right? of an inter-universal cross You should read event. Manifest Destiny, St. Louis. It's important. Okay. The other oh, yeah, thing is, right. is, like, when they shut that power off, like, the whole thing collapses. Yeah, that's a terrible design. Yeah, terrible design. Awful. <laughs> Fire that architect. <laughs> but, yeah, so Union gets freed. So Union was another character who's aware of the Deathmate ripple effects. Like, I don't know how it's a secret at this point, because it seems like every third character mm -hmm. knows that something's wrong with reality. And then once he is freed, he flies off to stop Deathmate from actually happening. And then Gen 13's leader, who is the only remaining person alive from that group, her name is Fairchild. She pontificates about how a world where none of this is happening might actually be for the best. And that's where it ends. So it's that, you know, dystopian cyberpunk, something is wrong with reality story. And is it true that this is where they introduced Gen 13? Like Gen 13 yeah. hadn't published yet? Had not published yet. That's nuts. Yeah. What an introduction. I mean, it's kind of like how the Suicide Squad got introduced in Legends, which Legends is such a whatever crossover. It's okay, but it's nothing really special or noteworthy. It's so weird. Yeah. 
I just realized you had said that already. And that's why no, you were like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I wasn't listening. <laughs> it's e- this is an easy pool to get lost in. There's so much going on in this comic. She's I busy. I don't know how you find it confusing. It's so straightforward <laughs> and simple. <laughs> okay. And this brings us to the epilogue. So Brad and Lisa, do you want to tie this one off? So this is my favorite issue of the entire series. And it's mostly because I love the art in it. You know, it's Mark Silvestri doing the first half and then Joe Casada doing the second half. And that's mm. just really like my sweet spot. But I don't want to steal the thunder from Lisa's notes because, oh my goodness, <laughs> look at those notes, Lisa. <laughs> So Solar and Supreme have reluctantly teamed up with Master Dark and Dr. Eclipse to stop future cool Solar from boning Void in unreality. Supreme is deeply skeptical about Dark and Eclipse's intentions, but Solar is like, there's nothing we can do about that now. And then suddenly Union shows up. Nobody knows him, but Supreme seems to be bolstered by the presence of another super being. And then elsewhere in Arizona, the events of the prologue start taking place and Solar is the buzzkill. So cool Solar doesn't trust our soul. I keep saying it. You say it Solar because that's what, how it should be pronounced. But I feel like Solar sounds like <laughs> you go more superhero. I, I like Solar. Go for it. <laughs> because he's hanging out with Master Dark. And um, okay, so now I'm baffling myself. So cool Solar reabsorbs our Solar into his bod. And Master Dark is pretty pleased because he has his own like dark designs on everything. And so Union sends Supreme after cool Solar and Dark sends Eclipse after Supreme. So Eclipse Mm -hmm. actually manages to best Supreme this super being with his powers of necromantic energy. And he gives Supreme like a real hard poke to the eye, (laughs) which destroys him. And Union feels that death and Dark asks why. And it turns out that when the two universes ended, Dark planned to suck all of the necromantic energy from two universes dying to become the one super being. So Union starts babbling cool Solar, but then our Solar pops out again. And cool mm-hmm. Solar and Void start getting hot and heavy. They're perilously close. And Dark reanimates Supreme, who is quickly bested by Union and Solar. But cool Solar and Void are already making out. So things seem to be too late. But Union tells Solar t- to give him a piece of himself. And then become a black hole so he can then absorb both realities. And once both realities are gone, Union uses the piece of Solar that he kept to himself to restart both universes, which works for some reason. So, like, from what I gather, we didn't need anyone other than Union this entire time. So, and S. Yeah. So, like... All of these issues, like that's just another reason why Deathmate should not exist as a yep. as books. Yep. You could have wrapped this up in three. Yeah. You could have wrapped this up in three. We didn't need all of these extraneous fucking hard cats and shit that was going on. Like, honestly, like soft cats, hard cats. We don't need any of the cats. But now, like now that Union has done this, everything is right in all of the universes. 
the Wildcats are back to being the Wildcats. And the only people who can remember the events of Deathmate are Union and Jeff and now us. But let's talk about the balls of the final panel, right? We've yeah. read this entire Deathmate saga and they have the balls to reference Watchmen in the final panel. You know, like <laughs> while Jeff is like looking at his little pigeon going away on the left hand side, there's like a little building, like you know, construction part. And then you see the graffiti. Who watches the? And then oh, we can't see all of the Watchmen because of copyright, but it clearly says Watchmen. Why would you do yeah, that? Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because I was so confused. I was like, this had nothing to do with what what is happening. Why would you like, remind the why? reader of one of the greatest comics of all time in your subpar money grab? And there seems I, to be like a, a Watchmen equivalent to all of the Deathmate characters. So it's just like, so if you didn't like Deathmate, here's a better version of all of these characters. Because Watchmen is like doing, you know, references to classic uh, Charlton and DC and uh, characters. Right. And then Image and Valiant, they're all like, well, we want our X-Men. Here's our X-Men and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's weird. Right. Goofy. Yeah, it's uh, not great. (laughs) Like, I will say, one thing that was kind of interesting is that the ending bit where solar becomes a black hole, that is actually a reference to the initial solar valiant issues where oh. the idea is the first 10 issues of solar man of the atom, they put issue zero in like five to 10 page inserts across those issues. So you learned the origin story of this character and it turns out that he was granted these powers And then I think he was making Gale sick with the radiation that he was emitting and he tried to pull it back in and he became a black hole and the black hole wound up destroying his, his version of earth. And then it spit him back out. And that's where issue one starts. So he is spit out like a few days before everything goes down with him getting his powers and all that. And it gets convoluted even more so and weird. But the idea is that when he went back in time and then changed things, that's when superheroes and Harada and the eternal warrior and all that stuff came into being cool. So I kind of liked that there is that callback to it, but at the same time, not worthy of a watchman reference. Uh, I, I mean, like my feeling is, you know, if the entire comic had had art as consistent as this epilogue, you know, if yes. they could have somehow magically made Joe Casada draw faster, um and do the whole run i think i would really enjoy Deathmate. well i'd like it a lot more than i do i think there's a schism that occurs between every issue and within every issue because it's constantly jumping artists and writers and the whole team so there's no yeah connective bridge yeah exactly well okay so was there anything about Deathmate that really stood out to you that you liked Like, was there a moment of art or or a story beat or anything like that? Well, I mean, sticking with the art, the climax of the issue where Supreme is battling Dr. Eclipse and Union and Solar are trying to prevent cool Solar and Void from touching. Like that splash page of all these tiny, tiny, tiny little panels, which is, you know, it's not nine panel grid, but you can see, I guess, Casada is doing like a Dave Gibbons moment there, but doing it like extreme mm-hmm. and, and a splash page of it. I think that's pretty cool leading into the page where Solar absorbs everything. I think artistically that all looks good. 
And I would yeah. say that Deathmate as a whole did get me excited to read some old Valiant comics and okay. hyped me up to go into our Dr. Mirage series. I was intrigued by the insanity of it all and the kind of... <laughs> <laughs> the the egotism that this like number of individuals are like yeah sure we can all work together and put together a cohesive story while we all somehow like aggressively try to maintain our own voices like i did enjoy trying to like detangle everything and to try to follow the comic but now having had this entire discussion about deathmate and understanding a little bit more what was going on behind the scenes like to me like i'm enjoying the post deathmate oh, yeah. conversation so much more i do know that i am the exact wrong person to pick up these <laughs> issues like aside from maybe someone who has never picked up a comic book before in their life like you know, I didn't have any kind of introduction to any of these characters outside of these comics. And I still managed to find things that made me curious and intrigued me. So, like, I think that, like, Deathmate existing as kind of a monument to this Era. specific point in time, I think it's just so cool. Yeah. 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 Jessica? You know, I liked any of the ones that were in the unreality they were a little bit more cohesive mm -hmm. they had less happening mm -hmm. less kinds of like you know all of these people with far too many muscles that we were supposed to be focusing on it was just you know and and it was just beautiful you know the color palette was gorgeous i liked the pastels of it i liked the way that things started blending together versus the fight scenes or the kind of reality scenes where we see a lot of hard lines and a lot of like black from all of the lining it was a lot more kind of fluid and, and kind of dreamlike, which I, I know was the vibe, but I just think it was done very well. Well, yeah. And I mean, they were also putting in like the top talent of both their lines on those books. They had Barry Windsor Smith. They had Jim Lee. They had Mark Silvestri. Jim Lee they inking had... Barry Windsor Smith, which sounds like the greatest thing on the planet Earth, but is, right? is not actually, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> just got to give him better material. Yeah. And then Joe Quesada, and I love Joe Quesada's art. And in fact, that was one of my notes is that my favorite art moments were from Epilogue, where it was Joe Quesada illustrating this fight in Unreality. So now that we've talked about the stories and what we liked, what we didn't like, mainly what we didn't like, <laughs> something that I really wanted to focus on, since this is your specialty, Brad and Lisa, is the relationship between Solar and Void, because the keystone to Deathmate's story is how the two of those in quotes, fall in love. And then their energies wind up wrecking reality. And since you examine these relationships between comic book couples on your show, I was wondering how you view their relationship through, I think we're talking about the five love languages. Yeah, the five love languages kind of like our go-to because we kick-started the podcast using Chapman's book. And we do not endorse Chapman in any As way. As a human being. <laughs> but I ooh, I listened to the audiobook before this episode and, yeah, and <laughs> I have thoughts. There's a lot of problems <laughs> with the book 
and its author. But he did give us this language of the five love languages that we find very easy to apply in conversations. And it is something that we've kind of like baked into our own relationship language, talking about like, well, where's our love tank right now? And so we have found it to be very helpful. But yes, there's our asterisks, Gary Chapman. <laughs> and uh, we, we're sorry that you had to read the whole thing, even if you had to listen to uh, it. Oh. I listened to it while I was walking the dogs at double speed. Okay. So it was a trip. Smart. <laughs> That's the trick. Smart move. That's the trick. Smart move. Uh, yeah. So also the, what I did while I was washing dishes. I was like, oh, oh. Yeah. So the idea of the five love languages is that we all go into relationships with what we expect to receive as love. Every person has something that they crave more than another, you know. And and, and things mm-hmm. that they dismiss as well. Right. So both Brad and I, our love language is words of affirmation. So yeah. we say I love you probably a gross number of times a day. And we seek out compliments constantly. Other love languages are acts of service, which is like doing favors. Physical touch, which can be... Sexy, sexy time, but also can be holding hands, cuddling. There's also quality time, just having uninterrupted time together. And then there's gifts, like receiving physical objects as like totems of love. And so the idea behind the five love languages is that individuals will respond stronger to certain different types of love languages. So if Lisa reads something that I have written, and then she has a lot of thoughts and a lot of praise for the thing that I've written, I will gain more energy and joy from that rather than if she had bought me like a new, you know, Marvel Legends action figure, which I would also really appreciate. (laughs) But I can do that myself. But like to, to use a classic example of love languages and miscommunication, like Scott Summers' love language is acts of service. So when Jean Grey became super powerful with the Phoenix Force, she didn't really need any help from him. And because mm-hmm. of that, he felt unconnected to her. Because Unloved. He couldn't express his love to her because she didn't need any help. But her love language was quality time and physical touch. But because he was pulling away, because he couldn't figure out how to express love to her, she was feeling disconnected because she wasn't getting her love language either. So Void and Solar, their their, uh, relationship is brief, though (laughs) super hot. But I do see some really overt expressions of love languages. So... Their relationship starts with them finding each other in unreality. Would we actually call this a relationship? I'm curious. I would say two people coming together, having a time together, and then walking away. That's a relationship. I mean, it is. It's a brief relationship, but it is an exchange of two people. Can we base a marriage off of this or like a lifetime of romance (laughs) off of this? Uh, Probably not. But I think that if Gail gets resurrected... And she's like, so uh, have you been with any other people? I think that he would have to mention with an asterisk void. Yeah, well, of course, of course. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> if he remembers it, because that was his schizoid self. Oh, yeah, that's true. He's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, but it was the part of me that was devoid of grief for you. Yeah, it, so it, technically it, it was not me. It was leather jacket solar. <laughs> we were on a break. <laughs> <laughs> Baby, this isn't my fault. <laughs> But the first thing Solar starts throwing out there to void are words of affirmation, 
Like he starts saying, like, you're so beautiful. I've never seen anyone so beautiful. But I do think that his love language is physical touch because he seems like as he's giving her those words of affirmation, like, I've never seen anything as beautiful as you, he says, touch me. So I do think that he feels that he can better express his love to her through that physicality. And do you think that they're an equal match? Because I feel like when we get to the epilogue and we see this encounter again, Void, unfortunately, is given so little character. All we Mm -hmm. know is that she wants to end reality, start new realities with this guy because she just can't control not touching him. So is it a physical touch thing for her too? She does want to be near him because she does express like, please like come closer to me. And then he lunges. But yeah, but she does have some kind of idea about them like actually physically touching being a terrible idea. (laughs) I feel like she gets a sense that like them being from two separate realities, them, you know, coming together might be a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, she's warning him, but his captions of the prologue say, like, I don't care, I love you. And then her captions are, we are together, oneness, our thoughts are one, our hearts are one, Mm -hmm. we are one. So to me, like her saying our thoughts are one, our hearts are one, I think it's more quality time is her love language because she is really appreciating her having his full attention. And her giving him her full attention. And in the prologue on that magnificent splash page where they birth a universe, those captions are hers, right? So if creation ends this moment, at least we have known our last thought together. Yeah, so to me that says quality Mm. time. How do you feel about acts of service with Solar? Because he was keeping Gale alive and then he blew up reality for Void. Acts of service is a big one for most superheroes because they do feel this compulsion to help others and receive affirmation that way. You know, you are so good because you have done these acts of service. You are loved by society despite your differences because you do these acts of service. And it is the thought of being alone without Gale that shatters his mind and creates cool solar. Right. I think that his relationship with Gale and how it went on so long, long past like Gale's wanting to be in the relationship anymore. Like I think that has to do with just the cultural idea of like a relationship is not successful unless till death do you part. And Gail expressed to him right before she passes away that he can find someone else and he can connect with someone else. So I think that that was his kind of clinging to like an old fashioned idea of like monogamy. Like how can it be true love if I'm not with Gail forever? But like... Just because a relationship doesn't end with one or the other person dying doesn't mean that that wasn't a successful relationship. I think that if Solar was a little bit more open-minded, he wouldn't be trying to extend that relationship with Gail well past 
its expiration date well past them both fulfilling each other's hopes and dreams, you know? It's such a heavy way to start your mega crossover event with Solar and Gale. What, in three pages, we are going to witness her giving up on life and him letting her go to then go strike up this sexual encounter in unreality. If I was an image person and I had nothing to connect to Solar with, I feel like you're not selling that moment. Like, I feel like more of this comic should be these first three pages. I do Mm. think, though, the idea of, like, mixing romantically super-powered beings with, you know, normies. Like, that's an ongoing relationship in all comic books. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking right now about the conversation in Black Canary, Green Arrow between Superman and Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman saying, like, you have Lois Lane. Like, that's more appropriate for superpowered beings. Like, if you're a superpower being, the last thing you want to do is be with someone who's going to remind you of work. Because, well, and because, also- Because you want an oasis. Right. But also this idea is, you know, his relationship with Lois keeps him connected to humanity so that he doesn't drift off into a terrifying god. Yeah. But then, like, we see the theme in Watchmen, like with Dr. Manhattan, like the idea of superpowered beings kind of poisoning literally and figuratively- those of us normies in relationships with them. Hmm. And so there is always this kind of romantic will they, won't they with superpowered beings and us mortals. Right. Which I think that even somebody who's not familiar with Solar and Gale specifically, people like comic book readers can can tap into pretty easily. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And then, you know, it's interesting because I was trying to see if I could find a self-help book that really focused on dating after widowing. And I found articles, but I didn't find a specific book. Mm-hmm. But I was reading about it and it came across something called the Holmes and Rahi Stress Scale, which was the scale of stress that was put together by these two psychiatrists back in the 60s. And they surveyed more than 5,000 medical patients and asked them to say whether they had experienced any of a series of like 43 life events in the previous two years. And so each of these events has a different weight for stress. And the one that was universally, like, I think it's like it adds 100 to your score is the death of a spouse. Yeah. And if you have a score of over 150, you are then exponentially more likely to get sick. And so it's one of those things where I was reading it and I went, oh, well, I guess I guess Solar getting sick in his way after the love of his life dies after spending 100 years with her makes sense. Yeah. And what do they always say as you approach... Your elder years, when your spouse goes, how, you know, it's frequently you see the other person go as well. At least that was the case with my two grandparents. Yeah. And I've heard that as well. It's got to be a fact, right? If I've heard it. Yeah, exactly. Right. I read it on the internet. (laughs) So let's transition over to Deathmates Aftermath. How do you guys feel about that? Do you think we've explored the relationship between Solar and Void? I mean, there's, there's like, you know, like you pointed out, there's not a ton of relationship there, which again is a weird thing to launch your entire crossover series on, especially when you read something like a prologue, you know, the prologue is supposed to be like the setup of what's going to happen. Why is it happening? And the why is it's happening is really only in three pages or maybe let's say the first half of the prologue and then the epilogue. And then 
the actual event, it's very little about the why. Right. So not a lot of Solar Void shenanigans in the middle. Well, and as you pointed out, Void really is not a character. She's a prop. Yeah. And and the thing is, is I was thinking about it, and I should have reread the early Wildcats issue as well, but I don't remember her having a lot of character in there either. I feel like she was kind of this blank slate godlike being. Yeah, I mean, I remember almost nothing about Wildcats. It's funny how like that series, which was maybe the one I was most excited about getting to as a kid because of my absurd love of, you know, the adjectiveless X-Men books when they launched with <laughs> Lee and Claremont. So when Lee was going to do Wildcat, that was the one I was most excited about. But I remember nothing about it. Spawn, Youngblood, I can key scenes yeah. in my head right now, but Wildcats? No. I remember individual character designs. I remember sure. the first issue introduced the character Voodoo, who we saw in Deathmate Black. And she's like a go-go dancer or a stripper. And I think you open up the page with her introduction, and it's literally a centerfold in Wildcats number one, where she is dancing in that fucking purple outfit that she had. It's on. weird. I do remember that page. How strange. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my few memories of reading that comic book, and it checks out. So let's turn to the aftermath of Deathmate. Going back to an earlier part of the episode, remember how I mentioned that Rob Liefeld isn't really a reliable narrator? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that podcast that he has, he specifically mentions that Deathmate Red was the best-selling of all of the Deathmate books, and that's an objectively absolutely wild claim. Like, there's no basis in reality other than his personal memories. That book came to market four months late in December of 1993, which was well after the epilogue issue was actually released. Basically, chronologically, one of the first issues came out after the fact. Amazing. Of this entire event. I honestly thought it was actually a lot later that it came out because I have a strong memory of my parents taking me to a comic shop on the way we had to go to a really long doctor's office visit in like February or March. And then Comicron, which is the site that tracks comic sales data across the years, They've got an incomplete list of data for 93 and 94, but four of the Deathmate books do show up on the top 100 books of 93, but you want to guess which one doesn't show up on that list? Red. <gasps> it's like you read it. <laughs> like, I know, like, try to contain your shock. Like, anyway, so there's also a book that Sarah gave me called The American Comic Book Chronicles of the 1990s, and it's by Keith Dallas and Jason Sachs. And they actually specifically focus on Deathmate and Deathmate Red. Jessica, it's all you. Deathmate Red was so late that Image resolicited to give retailers the opportunity to cut their orders. The earliest Deathmate issues had print runs close to 500,000 copies. Upon resolicitation, Deathmate Red's print run dropped to 180,000 copies. And even that outstripped demand because by the end of the year, few cared about the Image slash Deathmate crossover. <laughs> yeah it, don't think that was the best-selling <laughs> issue rob sorry <laughs> anyway so deathmate really wasn't well received by either the fans or the retailers we voiced our frustrations with it as kids when it first came out and then the retailers were also really upset with it comics retailer number 24 which was it was a trade publication for comics retailers it came out in march of 94 it served as the year in review issue for 93 and there was an actual Cheers and Jeers column that was written by Preston Sweet, and Deathmate got Jeer of the Year. Aww. And, you know, as we discussed, the books were super late, and readers were very confused because there wasn't a canonical reading order. 
And then here's the other thing. Deathmate is widely credited as causing the mid-90s comic industry implosion. <laughs> so much so that it's actually part of the Wikipedia page entry. Oh, no. What? Brad or Lisa, who wants to tackle this one? I'll take it. All right. For retailers, Deathmate was harmful due to tying up cash flow with books arriving late, especially given the $4.95 cover price. At the time, the average comic book cover price was less than half of that. Also, due to waning fan interest, the reorders were lower than initial orders. The Valiant Deathmate books, Prologue Blue and Yellow, had print runs of over 700,000 copies. But by the time Deathmate Red was released, it had a print run of 250,000 copies. That's still crazy. Although retailers were nonetheless left with many unsold copies. At the time, comic book distributors would only allow unsold books to be returned if they were six months late. Retailers dealt constantly with late books from Image, which indirectly caused some comic book shops to close. Partially due to the lateness of Image publications, the window was eventually decreased to two months. That's a lot to lay on Deathmate's feet. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, this actually seems to be kind of a mix of exaggeration and then mostly true claims, but the article that's cited as the source for this claim in Wikipedia doesn't actually state any of those figures are facts. Oh, wow. Right. So as a result, a lot of the articles and wiki entries about this topic state that Deathmate actually really fucked over mom and pop distributors, but they all feature variations of the Wikipedia page's text. Like, it honestly feels like a college paper where someone... Mm rewrote the same thesis in a way so they don't quite get busted for plagiarism. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think it just happens to be an extreme symptom and not the disease itself. Like, here's the other thing about 93. It was the year of late comic books. We've already talked about how Image was notoriously late with their own books, as well as the Deathmate stuff. Something a lot of people forget is that comic legend Neil Adams, he had also started up his own comic company called Continuity Comics. And the books coming out of that label were also notorious for A, insane gimmick covers, and B, never actually hitting store shelves on time. Comicron has a really good summary about how this was affecting the bottom line of comic shops, and also how the situation wound up changing comic distribution to protect retailers by the end of 93. Jess, you're up. The Image Valiant Deathmate crossover event in the launch of Neil Adams's continuity comics line had been fraught with problems. The final straws that had ultimately motivated distributors to reduce the cancellation window for titles. Up until December 1993, retailers still had to pay for comics they'd ordered from Diamond Comic Distributors, for example, even if those comics showed up as much as 90 days late. In October, Diamond had announced it was cutting the window back, making more late comics returnable. Capital had also cut back its window and publishers were rushing out announcements of their own new policies. The comics retailer mailbox was filled with angry letters about the situation. Right. Meanwhile, the other thing that you have to remember about this period of time is that publishers were trying to capitalize on the collectible comics craze, and they kept pulling stunts to drive sales. So I'm going to give you a quick list of major events that were going on during the same span of 93 and 94 when all the Deathmate stuff was. The new Batman debuted after DC did the whole storyline where Bruce Wayne's spine was broken. Superman died and came back. 
there was a huge part of the story where Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, went crazy and basically murdered the rest of the Green Lanterns, which then gave us Kyle Rayner as the new Green Lantern. The Fatal Attraction storyline was a crossover event between the various X-Men family of books, which ended with Magneto ripping out Wolverine's adamantium skeleton and Professor X basically mind-wiping Magneto. Spider-Man's Clone Saga kicked off in 94 and it lasted until 96. It's considered to be a disaster of a crossover between the different Spider-Man books. And then, this was the whole era when gimmick covers were super popular. Like, foil covers, die cuts, textures, holograms. One of my favorites is a cover from Forceworks number one where you literally unfold it like a pop-up book. And all of these companies were chasing the boom of that speculator market that we had talked about earlier, but the speculators were going away. Like, I kind of view comics at this period like NFTs are going for today. <laughs> like, everything is a collectible, and thus nothing is a collectible. And Deathmate definitely contributed to the mid-90s crash, but it wasn't the only player up there on the stage. And then it just went on to be infamous. And the funny thing is that this was never collected into a single volume at the time. And it's probably never going to happen because the rights to all these characters are just scattered at this point. I think Solar and Turok are over at Dynamite. The Wildstorm stuff went to DC when DC acquired the imprint. Original Valiant characters are still at Valiant's Resurrected imprint. And then I guess the stuff from Extreme Studios is still owned by Rob Liefeld. I think we're getting a profit movie. We are getting a profit movie, but I don't think he has all the characters. Like, I don't think he owns young blood anymore i believe there's some weird thing going on there too maybe i gotta be honest i don't pay much attention to rob liefeld very much sure um good policy <laughs> yeah i remember he also cut a deal with netflix at one point they were acquiring the rights to all of his extreme studio stuff and then that went away after a while yeah. and one of my friends who is also working on something with Netflix, was sitting there and he was going, oh, I know what happened. He got precious. They wanted to change stuff to make it more streamlined and accessible, and he didn't want to do that. So, you know, it's some secondhand gossip, but yeah, that kind of checks out. He's an interesting guy. You know, he, he says a lot of stuff that I don't agree with. Obviously, a lot of people have problems with his art. I've never been that person. I've always loved his art. Big breasted Captain America and all. Uh, you know, nobody draws like him. And for my money, that makes you an interesting cartoonist. So I've always kind of appreciated his take on superhero comics. But... You know, I like I can't join him on a lot of the things that he goes on about. Although Lisa and I have to say, like, we did run into him briefly in the streets of the Gaslamp District. Oh, in San Diego. In San Diego oh, wow. during one Comic-Con. And he was super nice to us. So, you know, at least I have that. He stopped for me going outside of WonderCon in 1995 and signed my copy of Youngblood Number 1. Yeah. See, that's nice. It's one of those things where he is one of those people that there are stories across the spectrum about him. Yeah. He's a very loud voice online. And, uh, yes. you know, that's always been a, a, a troubling thing for me. Yeah. And he really doesn't seem to get along with the other Image co-founders at this point. Like, I think he blocked Eric Larson on Twitter last year. They're a cantankerous group. <laughs> They're a really interesting group. I would love to be able to talk to them in a setting where they were not being recorded for an interview. And it was just like beers and truth serum and truth serum i would love to <laughs> chat with those guys but i don't think you can ever really get the scoop on anything and i don't even think they know the scoop on everything 
Yeah. Mm. God, there would be so much salty tea, though. Yeah, it would be pretty great. I mean, to be honest, that, that book about image is fantastic because it's all firsthand interviews. It's nothing but primary sources. I need to go ahead and give it a read or an audiobook listen if that's available. I don't think it is. Ooh. I bought a PDF of it when I was researching for this, and it was like 10 bucks. Okay. It's really a fun read. They just meant so much to, you know, 12-year-old Brad. It's I gave so much of my heart to those guys back then. And I, I have yeah. trouble saying anything bad about any of them. And like what they built, like, you know, what, what Image Comics is today is kind of incredible, but also very, very strange what's going on right now with the workers union. I'm very excited to see how that all plays out. Yeah. I mean, I'm very pro union, so I'm fine with this. But yeah, Image Comics is very different from what we got 30 years ago. Thank God. From a quality standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So Jessica and I have a friend named Tom Bayland. He has a comic that he's doing right now called Chica Cabra, but his autobiographical comic, which is called True Story, Swear to God, Image published it for a while. And he apparently like really told them off at one point because Eric Larson was in a meeting with him at the office and was telling him about how his art wasn't really that good or something like that because it was too cartoony or something. I don't know. But Tom basically said, well, at least I don't draw like a bunch of 12-year-old boys, like all drawing the same woman with the same expression with, you know, breasts bigger than three other people standing next to each other. <laughs> so my question coming out of Deathmate is what universe looks the most appealing to you? And I'm very curious about Jessica at least's opinion on this, especially. Oh, man. Jessica, like, you go first. Which universe? Like, do you mean, like, you know, the valiant side, the image side? I, or, I mean, if you can even remember who was what. I frankly don't even know between the two of them what was happening at any given moment. Me neither. Throughout <laughs> this series. Like, I literally cannot tell you. And so I, I don't know. A lot of it was very confusing. There was a lot of explosions. And I did notice like a shift, but. I mean, you know, we're going through the Sandman series and there are so many artists and so many different renditions that I kind of just thought that it was maybe one of those situations where it was like, oh, it's a different artist. So the vibe is slightly different. So I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Same. 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 I have no idea who was who and I'm barely curious. That's interesting. I like like oh, to me. It's, yeah, me less so. You know, the artistic shifts, like when you're reading a Valiant production versus an image production, it's so evident just from like a coloring right. standpoint. And as a kid, I loved Valiant books, but I was much more into the extreme image, you know, cross hatching and there's like computer coloring and all that stuff. But now I, I really appreciated the storytelling of the Valiant issues. Yeah. And the world is so intriguing to me conceptually, what we get in Deathmate. That's why I would want to revisit. Whereas like I get there's there's not much to get with the Wildcats, Wildcore, Night Strike stuff. It's all like boys yeah. and guns. Whereas I think there's more yeah. going on in the Valiant stuff with Solar and Archer and Armstrong and Eternal Warrior. Yeah. I've had the same evolution of opinions as you. I really have come to like the overall continuity and story of Valiant. I like a lot of the philosophical questions that they posed during the early years. It was also just, it was a much more interesting mix of characters. Like they weren't all roided out dudes with tiny feet and giant guns. Yeah. And I mean, like that was the thing about Valiant's superhero books was there was something 
kind of for everybody. Like Harbinger was for the X-Men fans. They had Exo Manowar, who was kind of a spin on Iron Man, but not really. Like Iron Man, Venom, and Conan the Barbarian all in one comic. Yeah, that's a great summary of that. And then, I mean, I loved Shadow Men because I've always found Voodoo to be pretty interesting. And then Dr. Mirage was the comic that I was able to pick up from the start, and it felt like it had a really solid, fun, paranormal investigator story, but also it had really, I thought, well-fleshed-out characters. Yeah, so I'm super excited to cover Dr. Mirage with Lisa now that she has experienced some of the Valiant Universe in Deathmate. Sadly, Dr. Mirage never shows up in Deathmate. No, so that's the funny thing, is you actually see the Dr. Mirage ads on the back of the Valiant books, and so he launched right after Deathmate ended. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, Dr. Mirage is also available for download on Comixology Unlimited. If you have that, you can read all of those issues for free. Well, we have talked for a spell, so let's wrap things up with our brain wrinkles, which are the one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that's just been sitting in our brains for the past couple of days. As of this recording, we've entered into Noir Vember. And for Noir Vember, I wanted to read all of Sean Phillips and Ed Brubaker's criminal series. And so I've been okay. living in that world right now and just really appreciating the structure of that narrative and how that first trade paperback coward introduces Leo. And then the second trade paperback introduces Tracy. And then from there, we start to see how all these minor little characters all have lives of their own. Like the bartender, Gnarly, he gets his own comic book and we get to know about his life. And it spends so much time building the criminal universe that when it finally builds to the cruel summer flashback paperback or hardcover, once I got to that, it felt like this atom bomb tying everything together. And I think it's just like, if you're interested in universe building, if you got into Marvel comics because you loved how Iron Man would sometimes spill into Spider-Man and you want to see how universe building is done in a contemporary way with a different genre, I think what Brubaker and Phillips did in Criminal is just unreal. And like Stan Lee would be super proud of what he created in the Fantastic Four resulting in what we get in Criminal. I do see a through line and I've been obsessing over it over the last two weeks. Nice. I would be lying if I didn't say what my brain is wrinkling around right now was anything other than Sandman. So on our Patreon feed, we are also doing a Sandman read through and we're doing it issue by issue. One and episode at a time. Yeah. So that's an undertaking. Like that's going to be like two years worth of content. Right? It was a tremendous yeah. commitment that I feel like Brad tricked me into. <laughs> where it's just like, this is what we're going to be doing for the next year and a half. Okay. But the way we're doing it is like we read an issue and then we talk about that one story for like an hour. And we go through, you know, we flip through the pages and go like, what did we think of this? And what did we think of that? And it's Brad's first read through. But yeah. It's technically my second because Sandman 
was one of the first, if not the first comic book that I ever read. I read it in college because a cute boy told me to, not Brad, another person. Sad. A worse person. <laughs> and Thank goodness. And like those first couple of issues, as I was reading them, I was like, did I read Sandman? <laughs> but now we're going into issue 11 and I'm starting to have as like, as if, I'm having like acid flashbacks or something. I'm starting to put those weird fever dream memories of Sandman together. It's been so much fun. In terms of like being a comic book podcaster, there's so much cachet in the like nerd space that has to do with like knowing everything. (laughs) Like you're somehow a better fan if you know the ins and outs of you know, all of the minor characters and, oh, but this ties back to this and that. And going into the Sandman space and having to share all of our first thoughts and opinions is so extraordinarily, like, vulnerable. Especially since our listeners, the majority of them know everything about Sandman. And and so they're just delighting in us being wrong in our predictions and stuff. But it's been really fun. And it's another place where, like... You can see like Sandman starts out by being like intimately connected to the DC universe, but then we are already starting to see uh, Neil Gaiman pull away and go like, okay, I want to find this corner of the playground where I don't have to play with anybody else. And it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've loved it. I've never read a comic book one issue one week at a time. So we've only read 10 issues so far, 10 hours of podcast content, and I've forced myself not to read ahead. And it's been really rewarding, but also, you know, uncomfortable, I would say, to explore that way, too. That's awesome. It's fun. Well, mine actually is kind of related to yours, where I actually picked up the Books of Magic Omnibus recently. And so I've been rereading through that. And I actually sent a screenshot of this to Jessica the other week. Where, because in one of our earlier episodes, we were talking about the Midsummer Night's Dream episode. And there's a bit where it's referring to Hamnet possibly being taken into fairy by Queen Titania, uh, Hamnet being Shakespeare's son. And then in the Books of Magic, you see Hamnet as her page serving her. And it's really interesting to me how the stuff that Neil Gaiman spins out winds up being very deeply connected to his other works in ways that you wouldn't catch if you had actually just come in cold and read this stuff. And there's throwbacks later on to fairy having a tithe to hell and things like that as well. It's really kind of astounding how much one comic wound up influencing acclaimed comic book fiction for a long time, because aside from the books of magic, you also had Lucifer, which spun out as well. And that was all guided by Mike Carey. And all three of these comic series, when the way that they end, you kind of have to sit there and just think for a while and and just you, you need some time to process it. And it's very meaningful to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. When you read Sandman, it is like jumping into this massive continuum. Mm-hmm. Because the first batch of issues of Sandman are so connected to Alan Moore mm-hmm. and, and even mm-hmm. to Jack Kirby. Like I just was so shocked at how influenced Neil Gaiman was, but then to see how Neil Gaiman then just like touches every comic book creator after 1989, 
Like he infects mm-hmm. the entire industry and all the cartoonists. And then to suddenly realize why that was the case. It's really quite beautiful. Yeah. Well, and Jessica's actually seen him speak too. She was saying that he's really fun to watch. He's an amazing orator. Yeah, he comes around into our area a lot because he has family who lives in Northern California near us. And so we're really fortunate that he does just every once in a while pop over and we'll just go speak and have a night with Neil Gaiman. And he answers questions (sighs) and he will read from bits of his own works. It was just the coolest thing. Jealous. Yeah. All right, Jessica, what's sitting in your head? Well, my wrinkle is actually something that got me thinking after listening to one of your episodes, Brad and Lisa. Oh. Uh, yeah, and you two seem to have had a similar experience with the online community because I jumped into Twitter fully expecting, and actually just recently, I, I literally got a Twitter for this podcast. Mike will attest he was my first friend <laughs> Yes. <laughs> for this podcast. And I fully expected that it was just going to be this cesspool of trolls and hatred. And I have to say that we have had just the nicest interactions with everybody that we've come into contact with so far. And we've chatted online with so many other podcasts and fans and creators. And it's just, it's been really surprising for me because I'm such a jaded and cynical individual to be in the midst of this, what feels like a massive love fest for this online community within the comics book fandom for me like my attitude with twitter is that you reap what you sow so Mm -hmm. if you put out positivity and you put out light and you really come forward with i want to celebrate what i love about comics those are the interactions that that you get and and i also have the thing of like you have to tend your garden so if you see someone popping up in your twitter feed that's triggering to you or there's just a conversation that you don't want to be part of. For example, one of my muted terms is Rob Liefeld. <laughs> <laughs> I had him, I was following him for a half a second because I was just adding all of these like comics creators and people. And he very quickly was taken off of my follow list. Yeah. So. Like it's to the point where it's like, I don't even want to engage in the conversation surrounding certain things because it evokes negativity. And I just yeah. don't like that feeling of like, you know, you read a certain tweet and all of a sudden your face gets all hot and your, your, uh, your pulse is racing. So like, I mean, yeah, I mean, you embracing the mute and block it helped mm-hmm. me embrace the mute and block. And once I did that, and especially muting terms and words mm-hmm. so that I could venture into Twitter and discover that Twitter is actually like a incredibly loving place. And a I've diverse made place. A diverse place. And I've made so many friends through Twitter. Like I love Twitter, but Lisa had to teach me how to use Twitter. Yeah. So like my main tips when it comes to curating your Twitter feed is tweet what you want to read, mute Mm -hmm. and block what you don't want to read and engage. Like if someone reaches out to you, even if it's a small thing, try to get it back and forth because you're going to find like-minded people and wherever you find like-minded people, you find people that you love and, and who enrich your life. But I really appreciate Jessica, like just pointing that out because I think so often the conversation around social media is so negative. Like, Oh, this cesspool, this hellscape, this toxic thing. Oh, fandom. So awful. But that's doesn't necessarily need to be true. Yeah. Fans are just people who want to celebrate and share. And a lot of the power of, 
like internet toxicity is people retweeting and commenting things that make them angry. And we just chose on CBCC, we are not going to engage in that. And it's been really successful and enriching for us as a, like, as a, ugh, I'm going to use the word brand. Don't use brand. (laughs) Well, I mean, the reason that this episode is happening is because we found you guys on Twitter and we liked the stuff that you were putting out. And so we started interacting with you. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're friends and it feels so great. Yeah. Oh my God, we're friends. Oh, Oh, this is like, seriously, you guys, this is a dream come true. Because I was telling Brad and Lisa before the podcast, I'm just going to fangirl for a sec. Because I was telling Brad and Lisa before the podcast, like, this is such a weird experience because I've been listening to their Mm -hmm. podcast and now I like get to hang out with them and like they're what we're friends with them now, which is like mind blowing. So I don't know. I appreciate you guys. (laughs) We appreciate you too. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, like, this was such a wonderful experience. Thank you guys for coming on. You're, you're the second guest that we've had on and you're the first real crossover that we've done. So this was such an incredible experience. Yeah. Well, this was a total treat. Like, I mean, what a gift to revisit Deathmate. You know, like we've, <laughs> we've done some crapping on it while we've been talking about it. But honestly, like I had so much fun revisiting these comics. I had fun reading the the, the comics, even when they were like, oh, uh and i think there's good stuff in them like i I like and it got me excited to read more comics from this era again to revisit my childhood so thank you unfortunately the result of this crossover episode is a disturbance in all realities (laughs) so um there if you're in a dystopian present oops sorry oh wait hold on God, I feel that to my core. Are we Ugh. in that dystopian present? That's what I'm saying. Oh my God. We're in the bad place. It's our fault. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Stupid Void. Uh. <laughs> it was Solar, really. Okay. It wasn't Void's fault. No. 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 I, you know what? And that was what bugs me the most was that Void was just kind of like, well, I guess this is what needs to happen. And I was like, no, you have a say. You have a voice. You Why have agency. character. Yeah, because I just love when female characters are just there uh, for plot yeah. points. And like, yeah, Solar gets to like hang out and do a whole bunch of stuff in the middle of this comic. But Void is in prologue and epilogue, the end. What the I, heck? I think that the fact no. that her name is Void <laughs> Is so, so indicative dumb. of the place of females in comics in the 90s. <laughs> yep. Feel. Her value is that mm-hmm. she's a hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A hole with big boobs. Uh, yeah. That's what we get. Oh, man. A shiny Nothing hole. Nothing is more beautiful than a woman who is empty. <laughs> <laughs> what can she bring to the table? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Not oh, a lot. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh. Wow. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> that that is a note to go out on. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Ten Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Fraser and Mike Thompson, as well as Brad and Lisa Gullickson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Fraser. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits in Transition Music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by Look Mom Draws on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, 
ask us questions, or tell us how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TencentTakes. Jessica is Jessica with a, and I'm assuming that with us is goes with K, right? Correct. I'm, yeah. I'm putting it together. <laughs> and Mike is Vansau, V-A-N-S-A-U. And if you have any words of affirmation, we actually don't take corrections at CBCC. We mostly just take words of affirmation. At cbccpodcast at gmail.com. Comicbookcouplescounseling.com is our official website. Lisa is at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. That's right. I'm at Mouth Dork. The reasons at Mouth Dork on Twitter. Then our official Twitter account at CBCC. I think I already gave that, right? I don't know. And we're on Instagram as well. <laughs> we got a link tree on the Twitter. You can click that. It'll take you to all the where the podcast stuff is. Oh, man. And this is so good. A little loosey-goosey there. That's um, great. Yeah, there, that's it. I think that's our contact information. Figure it out, you guys. That was like the death mate of plugs. <laughs> if you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.